Thank you, team. Let's grab a seat. Grab a seat. And good morning. Happy birthday. Everyone is two today. Can you believe it? Turn to someone beside you and say happy birthday. There you go. There you go. There you go. It is our two-year-old birthday. And if you are new to Bayou City Tomball, welcome on a very special birthday. My name is Kevin Barra. I'm the lead pastor here at our Tomball campus. And um, and if you were wondering how long, Kevin, have you been here, I started in July, and so uh, I am excited to celebrate. The first time we've been able to celebrate a birthday uh, here at Bayou City Tomball. Uh, just a, kind of little, little notes, we actually have a, a place to take pictures right here at the front, and then as Alan said, there will be cupcakes after the service, so hold on. Just hold on for a little bit, and you can get your picture and your cupcake after the service. If you have a Bible, we'll be, in Nehemiah, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 13. This morning, Nehemiah chapter 13, we are finishing our journey through the book of Nehemiah together, um, and I am excited about where God is leading us this morning. Nehemiah chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says this, On that day they read from the uh, book of Moses in the hearing of all the people. And it was found written, though there shall be no uh, Ammonite or Moabite, should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the blessing, the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those who were foreign descent. Now before this, Elishab, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked to leave the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elishab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber, and I brought back uh, there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found that there had been portions of the Levites that had not been given to them, so that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalimiah, the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, and Padiah, and the Levites, and all the assistants of Hanai, the son of Zakur, the son of Matanah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was distributed to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this. And do not wipe my good deeds, um, do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house, my God, and for his service. Verse 31, remember me, O God, for good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that as we sit in a moment when both we are in the midst of remembering the triumphal entry, when you came into Jerusalem, when you were presented as the king that we all needed. 
and the reality of, of what Nehemiah walked through and what it looked like to maintain the momentum of a faithful people and how difficult it is. And how difficult even in the days of Jesus when he came and, and tried to present himself as the solution to the human problem that that wasn't always received with um, open hands. And Lord, even with us today, that um, living a Christian life is not always easy. Maintaining faithfulness isn't always easy. I, I pray that you give us wisdom, discernment, and empowerment by your Spirit that we might live faithful lives in our days, even if faithfulness isn't always easy. Lord, help us to be the people we need to be so that we can do the things you're calling us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first time I ever went skiing, I was 28 years old. And I was taking a group of youth to Copper Mountain, so we were all learning to ski together. And so some people were already naturally great skiers, they'd been skiing all growing up, and so they just immediately went to the blues and blacks. These were usually like 16-year-old boys that are just like, I've got a snowboard and something to prove, and so they all headed that direction. Uh, but me, I didn't know how to ski at all, and I wasn't about to try to compete with those dudes. I was saying, okay, I'm just going to learn this skill. And so I spent uh, the first day, actually the first several days, uh, with a group of people that just committed to learning the basics. And it happened to be a group of freshman girls for the most part, <laughs> and one guy that was uh, learning to uh, ski on a snowboard. And so it was me, um, a, a mom, and then like all of these freshman girls. And so they spent a half a day basically on this, it wasn't even a bunny slope. Uh, it, to call it a bunny slope would be to overplay what we started on. It was, it was very simple, like a very basic little ski slope, and they just taught us the basics of, hey, keep your skis going this direction, and then it'll coast to a stop, and then, you know, you'll kind of coast to a stop right there, and it'll be great. So we start doing that and learning the basics of skiing, and then after a half day of that, we come back after lunch, and our ski instructor says, okay, now's the time we're going to go up the mountain. Now, this was a very basic green mountain where they were teaching all the basics of, of how to ski to, you know, newbies and, and you know, 14-year-old girls. And so they make us go to the top of the mountain. Now, there's a couple of things that have to go right in order to start going down the mountain. The first is this. You have to get on the lift, which is easier said than done. Uh, you, you watch the lift, and it, it kind of grabs people, and they go, and you see all these people that seem like they know what they're doing, and so you kind of put yourself into position, which on skis is more difficult than you think. So you, I'm, I'm working my way over there on these gigantic oversized shoes, and, and, and I get there, and it swoops me up, and as I'm going up, all of a sudden, somebody else, pull down the bar, and I'm like, what? And they're like, the bar, and I'm like, oh, the bar, so we don't fall to our deaths. Okay, great. And so I pull the bar down over my lap, and and then as we're going, no one had told me how to get off. <laughs> Once you're on, there is a point when you have to get off. And no one had like mentioned, hey, by the way, Kevin, you're going to have to get off of this thing if you want to come down this mountain. And as I'm going, I'm like, oh, no, here it comes. And you see people in front of you. I mean, it's going slow enough that you can watch them. And it's like, okay, they, they just kind of get and, and, and go and, and get off and go. And it should be really, really easy. And so we, we pull up the bar way too early, right? Way too early, we lift up the bar, and I'm like, this is not safe at all. How, how are they trusting us with this? And then we get to the point where we need to get off, and, and so I, I just stand up, assuming I will just glide. 
gently around. I stand up, and, and it carries me two or three feet. And I just stop in the middle of this intersection with nowhere to go. And then mounds of people behind me, they're all getting off because they know what they're doing. But my momentum had stopped, and so I had made a perfect barrier for anyone to go past me. And so a mound of people start running into my back. They knock me over. I'm like, oh, no, this isn't right. And, and they stop. They finally stop the machine. Someone helps me up. They push me over there and, uh, to, to where I need to go. I'm like, this was horrible. Why? A simple reason. One, I didn't know what I was doing. But two, it taught me this. The power of momentum. What stopped me from moving forward is that I didn't have the momentum to keep going forward. I didn't go off and know, hey, i got to keep pushing if I'm going to keep moving. Like, it requires some effort. I can't just get to the top of the mountain and hope I'm going to land where I want to be. Like, I have to put some energy. I have to put some propelling force down with my poles if it's going to propel me forward. I need to maintain and, and use this property called Momentum, momentum, and momentum is a beautiful thing if it's propelling you forward, but momentum can be very fragile. Momentum is extremely difficult to maintain. Maintaining unity in a singular direction is more challenging than any of us would want to admit. And what we've come to in the book of Nehemiah is this moment at the end of the story And Nehemiah had spent time in Jerusalem. His heart broke for the things that broke God's heart. And so he began rebuilding a wall. He unified a people. In 52 days, they rebuilt the wall around the city. A great start. A great start to rebuilding this city. And the walls represented the broken spiritual lives of the people as well. So they had a broken wall, but they also had a broken people. And so for the next 12 years, Nehemiah spent time with the people. To help them grow in their spiritual life, to encourage them, to help them grow more deeply in their devotion of the Lord. And so he spent 52 days rebuilding a wall and he spent 12 years as governor helping to rebuild this people so that they could be the people that lived out faithfulness to God in this place. They had been slaves in Babylon and the king had allowed them to return and allowed them to rebuild. And where we're at in this moment, it's interesting is that Nehemiah had to go back to Babylon with King Artaxerxes. For whatever reason, Artaxerxes had called him back to Babylon, so he left for maybe a year, maybe two years. Um, There's debate on how long he was gone. And as a leader, you hope that if you've set everything right, if you've done the hard work of unifying a people, when you step away, it's not all going to go to chaos when you leave. But unfortunately for Nehemiah, he's going to see the exact opposite happen. He steps away, and everything he built falls apart. That's tragic. You would hope at the end of the story, you would hear this line, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not true in many stories in your Bible. And it's not true in the story of the book of Nehemiah. And so I'm going to lead us through three things that I really feel like God is showing in this section, this last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. The first is this, the fragility of momentum. Secondly, what it takes to regain momentum. And thirdly, how to catch the wind. 
the fragility of momentum, how to regain momentum, and thirdly, how to catch the wind. The first is this, the fragility of momentum. Maintaining that forward direction is very difficult. I think one of the things that has struck me recently in, looking, in watching sports and watching college teams is the difficulty, the true difficulty it is to maintain momentum. And there's three, three challenges. There's three things that really make maintaining momentum very difficult. It makes momentum very fragile. There's three, three pushes against the momentum. The first is this, transition. Secondly, compromise. And thirdly, drift. What stops us from being able to continue in a positive direction? Transitions, compromise, and drift. The first that we see in this section is is transition. In verse 6 it says this, While these things were taking place, I, that's Nehemiah speaking, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year, Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and sometime I asked him to leave leave the king. And so there was some time that he was with King Artaxerxes, and there was this transition. There was this vacuum of leadership. There was this vacuum of authority, this vacuum of, of Nehemiah no longer there pushing things forward in a particular direction. And in that transition, there was some leader that needed to step up. The likely candidate was the high priest, um, Elishab. We're going to look at him in a moment. But there was, there was a likely to be a leader. The spiritual leader should have stepped up. The high priest should have stepped up and led the people forward, continued the forward trajectory. But, but the problem was this. No one stepped up. No one left. When this great unifying leader took a step aside, no one filled in the gap. And we've all seen this happen. We've all seen moments when a team seems to be going in a good direction and when one significant leader steps out, the whole thing can start to crumble. We've seen this in the Chicago Bulls. Um, this, over, this, over the break, uh, we saw, uh, I watched um, the, the 30 for 30 films, uh, The Last Dance, referring to the, the Bulls as they had this opportunity to, to win championships with one player in particular, Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan was an incredible athlete, an incredible basketball player. And there was this right combination of people that, that circled around him at that strategic moment. There was Scottie Pippen that came. There was Phil Jackson that came. They had all of these pieces coming together, and they put together a championship team. And they won three championships in a row. It's amazing to watch their journey of, of this unity and overcoming these obstacles. And after that three-year journey, Michael Jordan made a a statement that shocked the world. He says, I'm going to retire. He was a young man in his 30s, and for him to step away from basketball was was going to be a huge shock, not only to the league, but in particular to his team. And as soon as he stepped away, there were several people that tried to step up and lead, but they couldn't. They couldn't hold it together. They couldn't overcome that significant transition. And because they couldn't overcome that transition of this key person leaving, the team floundered and struggled. And we've all watched this. We've all watched companies. When a significant leader steps out, that company can flounder, that company can struggle. We saw this in Apple. 
Steve Jobs built this company, stepped away for a period of time. They start to flounder and struggle. They said, Steve, we need you back. We need you to come back in and, and lead this in a new direction. What, what peop, the people of God needed was a significant leader to say, no, this is where we're going. And in that vacuum, if no one steps up to lead people in the right direction, the people struggle. The people flounder. And we see the next problem that comes into the people is they begin to compromise. If there wasn't this person there showing me where to go, I began compromising personally. The word compromise, uh, I, I'm using it in a, sp- a very specific way. What I, the way I'm referring to it is this, you're losing velocity because you're being distracted. The definition um, says it this way, the verb compromise could mean to settle a dispute by mutual concession, but that's not the compromise I'm talking about. You should do that compromise in your marriage all the time. But I'm talking about this version of compromise, the second definition. To accept standards that are lower than is desirable. To accept standards that are lower than is desirable. And that's what happens next. Instead of choosing some people to follow what the path that Nehemiah had set, you see compromise in the community. Verse 4, it says this. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, he was related to Tobiah. Now, Tobiah, all throughout the book of Nehemiah, has been the adversary to the people of God. He has been the one that has opposed the work. He opposed the building of the wall. He's been been hurting the people. But, But the high priest is related, likely through marriage, to Tobiah. And so what did this high priest do because of this relational connection that he had? He allowed this relationship to draw him off course. He says he prepared to buy a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. So what should have happened is that the people of Israel would be fruitful, productive, and they would give a portion of that grain to the Levites to to provide for them so they could eat and maintain the worship of God. It was a normal process, but for whatever reason, we're going to look at it in a second, the grain The grain offering location, the storage place, was empty. And because it was empty, Elisha said, hey, Tobiah, why don't you just go ahead and live at the church? That's great. There's a room no one's using. Let's go ahead and clear that out, and we'll allow you to move in to town. We'll allow the enemy of God to take up residence in the house of God. That's what's happening. And so he prepared him a large chamber where they had previously put grain and frankincense in the vessels. And they took all of that out, all the contributions that were given to the priests. And, and Nehemiah says, I was gone while all of this was happening. Elishab was the priest, but Nehemiah wasn't present. And so all of a sudden, you see him making compromises relationally. And those compromises relationally didn't stop. They also led to compromises spiritually. Verse 10, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and singers who did the work, who helped helped lead the worship of God, had fled each to his field. Now the reason they fled to the field is because the people weren't, weren't, weren't helping to support the worship of God. 
Because the people weren't helping support the worship of God, all the Levites and singers are going like, well, I guess I got to go make a living. And so they go back to their fields to, to be farmers because no one's, no one's supporting the system of the worship of God. They let these compromises in relationship pull the worship of God to no longer be a value. Why were the storerooms empty? Because the people of God said, you know what? This isn't a priority anymore. The worship of God isn't a priority I have some relationships interpersonally that are pulling me off course and they're, they're pulling me this direction. So you see transition, you see compromises, and thirdly, you see this lead to a, a drift. A drift from following God. You see a devaluing of the worship of God and a devaluing of the word of God. Every time there's a drift, from what God would have us do, there's a devaluing of worship and there's a devaluing of the word. And we see it where they no longer are keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath was that one day when the nation of Israel was supposed to say, this day we're going to worship God alone. This day we're going to dedicate to the Lord. So, but they start working on the Sabbath and using the temple as a place to do business, not worshiping God. And then you see this intermarriage issue. And we talked a couple weeks ago that the issue with intermarriage and foreign, and foreign marriages was not an issue of, of, of relationship. It wasn't a racist and it wasn't an anti-national issue. It wasn't that. God's against all of those things. It was an issue of worship. And he says that as soon as you start intermarrying with these other people, you are drifting and you are no longer prioritizing the worship of God or the word of God. He critiques them because they hadn't even taught their kids how to read Hebrew. And because their kids no longer even read Hebrew, they no longer had access to the word of God. So they were deprioritizing the worship of God, not obeying the Sabbath, and they were neglecting teaching their kids the scriptures. And you see that the transitions led to compromise and led to drift. Every summer, um, for, for several summers, I don't think we did this past summer, but for several summers, we would always go to the beach with my kids. And I absolutely love going to the beach because it's just fun to go out there and play in the waves. But what's, what always happens every single time is my kids have gotten older. They've, they've wanted to go out further into the ocean. And so they start going out further and going deeper. And I'll be sitting sometimes on the shore just watching them. And, and you'll see this. They start here, right in center with where you are. And then the current and the tide just starts pulling them further and further over. And it's kind of funny. I watch some families that start way over there. And I just watch them over time come this direction and are way over there. And then I see them walking up the side of the shore with their floats in tow, like, like walking up, which is, which is hilarious because they're full of sand, exhausted, walking a mile this direction. Because if you just let the tide take you, you get off course and you get pulled. And that's true in every one of our lives. If we miss the fixed realities that are supposed to hold us strong, we will drift from where God wants us to be if we don't have those fixed points. So what do I tell my kids? I tell my kids all the time, as soon as you go out into the water, you turn back and you lock, you lock in on me. You see where I am. Because when you get out there, I want you to turn and I want you to look. And as soon as you feel yourself being pulled, you can pull yourself back. 
As soon as you see yourself being pulled this direction, you can start walking against the current, fight the current so you can stay where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be right here with the worship of God and the word of God, prioritizing God as the center of your life. And if you take your eyes off of that, what happens with every single one of us is we drift. There was a song several years ago and described it this way, um, as a slow fade. See, no one wakes up one morning and says, you know what, I'm done with this thing. What ends up happening is a slow drift and a slow compromise and a slow drift and a slow compromise leads you to where you never thought you would be. I talked to so many friends over time where as, as young men, Coming out of high school, they were excited about the things of God and they got into college and then some relationships started pulling them one small drift at a time to a place they never want to be. I talked with men. I was in small groups with men for a period of time and, 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 and seeing the passion on their face of wanting to grow in the Lord, wanting to prioritize Jesus in their life. But, but over time, small compromises, small shifts, small pulls, And all of a sudden, they're in a place with their family, looking at a terrible circumstance, walking through the realities of divorce because of these small compromises that led to a big drift. It happens all the time. And in Nehemiah's situation, he says, okay, what am I going to do when the drift starts happening with the people of God? Andy Stanley has an amazing quote on this. He says this, People without clear vision are easily distracted and they have a tendency to drift from one idea to another and often make foolish decisions that rob them of their dreams. So what's needed when the people of God begin drifting from the purposes of God? Well, it's the same thing that happens every spring. You've noticed it when you've walked out to your yard. You walk out to your yard every spring. It finally starts getting warm. I mean, the air is a little bit warmer. It's it's these beautiful, perfect evenings. The sun's out shining. There's no longer snow covering Tomball. It's a beautiful spring day. And you walk out into your yard, and you're like, oh, it's probably going to be green grass and beautiful flowers right on the side of the house, right? False. I remember the other day I walk out to my backyard, And there's weeds climbing all up the sides of my yard, weeds all in the garden. And so what's needed for everyone when spring hits? It's time to fertilize. It's time to pull up some weeds. It's time to get our hands dirty so that we can move this chaotic lawn to a place I want to go. This also happens every week in my kid's bedroom. I have an amazing five-year-old daughter, Juliet, and I will spend hours folding and hanging every dress, folding every pair of clothes, putting everything away, and four days later, I walk into my daughter's bedroom, hoping, praying that you would keep it a little bit clean, but daddy is always disappointed. But she's five, so I give her a hall pass, right? And what do we need to do? We have to roll up our sleeves 
and get to work. We have to put in the energy to gain the momentum we once had. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. See, Nehemiah had the opportunity to just say, you know what, I tried. Like, I gave it my best go, and he could have walked away. He said, you know what, I'm going back to Babylon. They've got nice wine there. I'm going to hang out. We read about that earlier. We, like, I could have bailed on it, but he didn't. He does three things. He has three steps to regain momentum. The first is this recommitment. Secondly, bring correction. And thirdly, lastly, that he would model consistency. So it's correction, it's commitment, correction, and consistency. The first is this, that we see a recommitment. Peg Wood says this, commitment is the igniter of momentum. In verse six, we see the problem um, that Tobiah was in the temple, that he was given over, and it says in verse eight, then I was angry. So he came and said, what's going on? He came back to Jerusalem, he was angry, and he threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and I gave orders there and cleansed the chamber and brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain and offering. The first thing that we see is that Nehemiah says, you know what, I'm not gonna be a bystander. I'm not going to let this temple go to ruins. I'm not going to allow this to happen. I'm going to have a commitment to re-engage. I'm going to commit myself to this mission. And tell you what, God needs that from you. A decision to say, I'm not going to let things continue to go to chaos. I'm going to step up. I'm going to step in. I'm going to be a bringer of life. I'm going to pull leads. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to get in the lives of people. And I'm going to commit to help things grow. And you know what? All of Nehemiah's conversations are going to be a little bit awkward. In fact, often it says, and I confronted, and I confronted. He's going to confront a lot of people in their sin and move things forward in order for the people of God to move in line with the purposes of God. It means that we're going to have to have some tough conversations, that we're going to commit. We're going to follow God in this place. The, re, the way that Bayou City Tomball is not going to just have a two-year celebration but continue the process of bringing the gospel into the Tomball community is when the people of God, you, right here, decide we are about the purposes of God and bringing the gospel to Tomball. It's when we together say, you know what? We are gonna be a part of, of continuing what God is building, not being satisfied that we made some progress along the way. It takes recommitment. And secondly, it takes corrections. Small, continuous shifts in the right direction. It's small, continuous shifts in the right direction. You see that he begins by prioritizing worship. He says, verse 10, I found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, and that the Levites had to go work the field, so I confronted the officials, verse 11. I said to them, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them to their stations, and I brought all of Judah and the tithe offering together. He says, I reset this. I, I prioritize worship for us. Have you done that for your family? Have you prioritized worship for your family? Have you prioritized reading the word of God for yourself? Have you prioritized that as part of your life? He says, I'm going to make this correction. I'm going to make this shift. And on the working of, of, on the Sabbath, verse 17, he confronted the nobles of Judah, saying to them, what is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Did not your brothers act in this way? And did not God bring disaster on us? The reason they were in captivity 
was because they had not kept the Sabbath. He says, this, this is an issue. This is why we had problems. And he starts bringing these corrections. And then he addresses the marriage issue. Now, this one gets really rough. As you're reading the Bible, you're like, oh, aren't those people nice? Aren't they like cheering each other on? Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons to take their wives and their daughters. He beat them and pulled out their hair. That's a rough go. Was that, was that beyond what was appropriate? I don't, man, I wasn't there. It seemed rough. But then I think back to Jesus. I think back to Jesus. See, this week is is we're celebrating the triumphal entry. When Jesus came, and and there was a moment of celebration when when Jesus came to Jerusalem. There was this amazing moment of celebration, and, and they were waving palm branches. And the palm branches actually represented the Jewish national flag. It was a national emblem. It's like waving the U.S. flag. They're waving palm branches. Hosanna in the highest. They're saying, the king is coming. They're celebrating. They're excited. And then what is the first thing Jesus does as soon as he enters into Jerusalem? He sees that they're, they're making commerce in the marketplace, and he starts flipping tables. He says, what is going on? The worship of God should be our priority and you've made it into a den of robbers. He starts flipping over tables and running people out and says he got a whip with cords and starts beating people, chasing them out of the temple. And I'm like, yeah, had I been there, I'd be like, Jesus, this is not how you win friends and influence people. (laughs) It's not. But when the worship of God is at stake, Jesus says, now this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And what's needed in our lives is the commitment to set the priorities of our lives and the boundaries of life so that the worship of God is at the center of our lives. And sometimes that takes hard, grueling work for us. And so what that might mean for you, I always, always heard this story, there was, there was a group of kids and they just started walking with the Lord for the first time. And this was back in the day when you had internet on a cord. And there was one kid that, that he was ministering to, and, and he was having all of these issues struggling with pornography. And so at one point he said, he was walking with him, discipling this kid. He's like, you've got to change that. You've, you've got to work on that issue, and you've got to remove everything that's holding you back from that. And the next, next time they met, a week later, he comes with his cord and says, this is my ethernet cord. This is back in the day when there was an ethernet cord. Take it by faith. He says, I need this. And a couple days later, this kid's friend comes with his Ethernet cord and says, here, I I hear you're collecting these. Because these young men knew that to walk in holiness took a radical decision. And sometimes to walk in holiness, it requires us to take a radical decision to our own lives. Do you need Internet at your home? I don't know. Does someone else have a password that can protect the internet in your house? Hopefully. For others of you, it's going to be at work. Work has pulled you in such a hard direction away from the purposes of God and away from your commitments that that are for God. They pulled you so far away from where God would want you to be. And you're like, I can't. I'm on this treadmill that will never end. And, And for some of you, God might be saying, 
It's time to take a hard look at that and say, is this where God really wants me to be? For some of you, it's in your marriage. For some of you, your marriage has, has hit so many rocks in this season, so many conflicts. And you're telling yourself this, we could never get away and work on our marriage. We don't have time. And I would just tell you this, you will pay out that time initially or eventually. Initially with investment now or eventually in the courts. You will pay that time. How are you going to prioritize your time? How are you going to pay that out? Are you going to prioritize the right things in life? And are you going to set the right boundaries in life? That's what Nehemiah is after. We want you to prioritize God above all else. And we want to set boundaries in life that enable you to to prioritize and worship God above all else. And then save the rest of our life. Okay, you you will take second step to that. You'll take second step to that. And then you see this a beautiful picture of consistency. Nehemiah, from the beginning of this book to the end of this book, has been faithful to the Lord, consistent all the way to the end. This consistent character that guided his life. Craig Rochelle says, successful people do consistently what others do occasionally. I'm reading, we're reading a book as a staff called Lead by Paul Tripp. It's a very, very helpful book in which he talks about what does it look like to, to lead in the Christian life and lead particularly in ministry. That's the application in which he's directing the book primarily. But it's actually helpful in all areas of life. And in one of the chapters at the end of the book, it's called this. Um, the title of the chapter is Longevity. And he writes about a moment in ministry when he was ready to quit. He writes this. The words were spoken to me when I was fearful, discouraged, tired, and feeling otherwise beaten down. I didn't want anyone to talk to me. I was a failure, and I was running. I couldn't imagine a life of pastoral leadership anymore. It had once been a passion, a dream that seemed too good to be true, but the passion had morphed into a burden, one I could no longer bear. Insert pastoral ministry with whatever it is, whatever the burden is that you're chasing. It's your marriage, it's your work, it's your family, it's whatever it is. Insert that. I, found, I had found a safe landing place, and I couldn't wait to put ministry behind me and land there. I had made my announcement, and my heart had already closed the present and opened up what was ahead. I was all in, and I did not want any more tough conversations, but then someone approached me. I hoped it was a quick, hello, we're praying for you, but it was much more than that. He said, Paul, we know you are immature, (laughs) and we haven't asked you to leave. Then he said, where is the church going to get mature leaders if immature leaders run? Don't go. I was frozen in that moment at the power of his words. They were gospel words, and I knew it. They were packed with years of patient wisdom. I think his words were much wiser than he ever knew. One of the greatest gifts you can give your family, your friends, this church, is what the Bible calls perseverance. It's longevity. 
It's what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. We often overestimate what we can do in the short term and underestimate what we could do in the long term. Um, a good friend of mine, a guy named Ben Stewart, led a ministry called Breakaway Ministries. I remember sitting at Reed Arena during the last sermon he was given as director of, of that organization. I remember sitting there in the audience, um, and what do you say at your last moment, right? Like, what do you say there? But there was one line that he said that was, that was so penetrating. He says, your life will be measured more by consistent faithfulness than momentary brilliance. The true measure of your life will be measured more by consistent faithfulness rather than momentary brilliance. The greatest gift you can give your family is the gift of your presence over the long haul. The greatest gift you can give the people you are discipling is your consistent faith over a long haul. The greatest gift you can give this church community is your consistent faithfulness over the long haul. And as you stack up those small wins, as you stack up those small, consistent acts of faithfulness over time, you know what's going to happen? It's what Nehemiah prays for over and over and over again throughout this text. Because he knows that he can't change the human heart. He knows he can't make these people want to worship God. He can't make these people want to be faithful. He can't make anything happen. All he can do is to be faithful with the small steps with where he is. And he says this repeated refrain all throughout the text. He says, remember me. Verse 14, remember me, O God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for this house, my God. Verse 22, remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 31, remember me, O God, for good. You know what he's praying for? I don't think he's praying for his own honor. I don't think he's praying for that. I think he's praying that God's presence would come back to the temple. I think he's praying that all the labor of his hands would see a fruitful moment when he returns, when the Spirit of God comes and lands in the temple. I think he's praying, he's hoping for a return of the king. That moment when Jesus will come to earth, when God would be with his people, that he is praying for that. He is praying for the Spirit to return to his people. He's praying for the wind of God to blow. Jesus says in John 3, 8, the wind, the Spirit blows wherever he wants. You can't hear it where it's coming and going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. He is praying that God's Spirit would come back to the temple and it would come back to life. He is begging for it and he doesn't know, he doesn't know that it's going to be a long time before Jesus would finally come again. But Jesus is going to come again. This temple will be great. Why? Because God's presence will come. And you and I are in the same spot where we have consistent steps of obedience, but we don't change human hearts. That's God's job. We prepare and we pray for the wind of God to blow. And if you position yourself just right, you might catch the wind.
when I was in, in high school, I went on a, uh, a cruise, and one of the excursions that we did was um, on a catamaran trip. And I don't know if you've ever been on a catamaran, but it's, it's basically a, what I would call a sailboat on steroids, because it's got a huge mast that when it catches the wind, it blows faster than you could ever imagine. And I remember sitting there like on this net area, and then all of a sudden the sails went up, the wind starts blowing, and we're flying across the ocean. And it is beautiful, crystal clear. It is blue and pure, and we're going out to see some stingrays or something like that as we're going out there. And I remember just feeling the power of the wind blowing and us being propelled across the water and the beautiful feeling it felt when the wind was behind you. And I've thought about significant moments in my own spiritual life when it's consistent acts of faithfulness and there's moments when the wind of God blows. There's moments when God says, yes, that's what I'm blessing and you see someone come to faith. Yes, that's what I'm blessing and you see leaders rise. Yes, that's what I'm blessing, and lives begin to change. And I'll tell you what, one of the most significant things you can be a part of is preparing and setting your life and then watching God bless beyond measure. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. At the end of the day, What will most honor God? Steady, consistent acts of faithfulness that prepare the way for the wind of God to blow. We get to celebrate our birthday. We are two. We are two years old. And I think we should celebrate our birthday like every two or two and a half year old, or two and three quarters year old, or three year old, or three and a half year old, or three and three quarters year old, celebrates it. When you're little, you can't wait to count the days because every day is a new adventure, right? Every day is a new adventure. I love taking, when my kids were little, taking them to a new place because it was a new adventure. You go to the beach, it's completely new. You go to the aquarium, it's completely new. Look at these sharks, yeah, yeah. Every day is new and blessed by God. I would love us to be a church that always sees the fresh wind of God blowing into this place because every day is new and God is doing a new thing here every day. One of the things I'm going to encourage you to do in closing is to come to our vision night tonight. You may not have signed up yet. Now's the time. And I want to talk about, we're going to talk about where God has us and how we can unite together to continue to make an amazing impact in this community. Vision night tonight. It will be in this room. It's going to be absolutely amazing. Some of you have asked to help set up and flip this room for for tonight, so if you um, have nothing to do after this, which I encourage you to have nothing to do after this, help us set up. It'll only take a couple hours if we do it quickly, maybe an hour and a half, who knows? But be a part, lean in hard, because God's doing something special with this community, and we need every one of you to play your part 
so that God might be glorified, so that lives might be changed, and so that God can be honored in this place. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the faithfulness of Nehemiah. And Lord, as I look at Nehemiah's life, I can, I can reflect on some of my own challenges in life. How difficult it is to maintain momentum. How difficult it is to continue those small, incremental steps that you bless. But Lord, I pray that we would be a faith-filled people, a faithful people, that we are ones that have a long obedience in the same direction, a longevity to our faith, that we don't walk away, we don't quit, we don't give in when it's tough, but we lean in together. We follow you, Jesus, above all else. And Jesus, we make the hard decisions. We cut out the pieces of our life that are inhibiting us from following you wholly. And we take faith-filled steps. So Jesus, at the end of the day, you will be honored. You will be glorified. At the end of our days, you promise you'll say a simple statement. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Enter into the joy of your master.